Tits up is both an expression used when things have gone terribly wrong and a phrase coined as a rallying cry to stand up straight, own the stage, and knock them dead. There are few things in this world that can make your life go tits up more quickly than a breast cancer diagnosis, especially for adolescent and young adult women. This podcast is meant to give us AYAs, a feeling of community, understanding, and power, helping us to walk into each day with a feeling of tits up. Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Tits Up. As always, I am Megan, and I am joined by my fabulous co-host, Sam. Sam, hello. Hello, everyone. Folks, today we have a fantastic guest. I'm so excited about her. Um, We've been wanting to have her on for a long time. We are joined today by Dr. Jane Irvine. Um, Jane, I'm gonna let her in a moment um, kind of explain her background and all of her accolades. Um, But we really, really wanted to have Jane on today to talk about the children. Um, You know, for those of you that have kids, how do you talk to them? How do you explain what's going on when you have a cancer diagnosis? So Jane, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It's very so, nice to be here. <laughs> um, we're, we're really, really excited about this. Um, so Jane, give us a little bit of your background, kind of you know how you came up, what your main focus is in your work, um, and also a little bit about what makes you tick as a human being? Just what are your what are your favorite things? Um, what makes you happy? Um, I began my professional life as a lawyer and worked almost immediately with families with children. Uh, working in Europe, um, a lot of the work I did was collaborative, working with families to try and focus on the children and what the children needed as their parents went through this time. Uh, I was often the representative for children in court, um, again, advocating for kids and what kids need. When we moved over here, um, I opened a practice focusing on um, working with kids. And here I'm qualified as a licensed professional counselor. Um, My kids call me anything from Dr. Jane to Miss Jane to Hey You. Um, all of which are perfectly applicable. Um, working as a, working as a, a therapist with kids, um, a lot of what we do is talk about what the kids need to know, how they process what they're being told, and how to get what they need um, shared with them by parents, rather than leaving them doing what kids do, which is depending on their age either creating stories about what's going on, which are often inaccurate, or if they're teenagers nowadays, getting up onto the um, internet and doing research, some of which is reliable and some of which is not, and then again, creating their own narratives and fears about what is going on. Uh, So I do educational sessions for parents on how to talk with kids through traumatic times, and I work with parents on how to talk with their kids and what to say. And sometimes I have the privilege of working with couples as they try to work out between themselves what they tell each other and how to think about and change the construction of their marriage as crisis hits, which may be continuous. They may actually continue in that patterning or they may revert back to what was their norm once the crisis has been handled. Thank you for that. Um, before I go into, because I have a million questions for you, but before I go into those, tell us just a little bit about yourself just as a person. Um, I am about to celebrate my 40th wedding anniversary. Yay! <laughs> I can't believe it. I was married before I was born, really. Um my husband and I met in Scotland. I was in um, university in Scotland, and he is a Scot. And one of the things I, I, one of the things I say is, Scots make wonderful husbands. They have an amazing sense of humor, and they're very helpful people. Um, as a as a as a race, my experience of them is that they're really cool. So I, I 
I kidnapped myself as Scott. Um, <laughs> and, um, he works in IT and um, he was the reason we came over here. Um, we love the outdoors. Um, we skied almost as soon as we arrived. Um, both of our children ski. We have two wonderful little girls. Well, not so little anymore. Um, they are both married um, and um, building their own lives together. Um, we we ski, we hike. Um, we have a, a dog and a cat. Our cat is a great lump of gray fur who is, he talks like like he was human. And we, we have, we've just adopted um, a, a dog and she is just a little darling. She is so sweet and so loving um, and doing so well. So we have our family and we have our home. And one of the things I do when I'm not working is I work in my garden. I grow vegetables, I grow plants. Um, it's, it's really good for the, the stress management is to I be involved with nature. I completely agree. I was telling my husband that my goal for someday, whether it's retirement, hopefully it's before retirement, I want to have a big plot of land. I don't need to be around a bunch of people. I want to have a big open space. I want to be an old lady with a big hat and just digging in the dirt all day long with my animals around me. That sounds, even if nothing grows, I just want to give it a shot. And I feel like having my hands in the dirt will be so helpful. <laughs> Old lady with hat and cat sounds good to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. All right. So let's kind of dive into this. Um, before we talk about just specifically cancer, let's kind of talk about just how children's brains work differently from humans. You were you were kind of um, sort of mentioning that a little bit ago, but um, how are their brains different whether it's for the better for the worse and you know long-term effects of traumatic experiences on a child children's brains develop um, in the womb and from birth they were they're not grown with the brain that we have as adults they they their brains grow and when they're born the right hand side of their brain is larger than the left the right-hand side is the one we, in simplified form, refer to as the emotional side of the brain. The left-hand side is our logical, um, um, sort of um, linear uh, part of the brain that we learn to use as we get older and develop. So with little children, what you find is that they are very focused and intense in the moment. Um, they are very focused on their needs. And they don't really see themselves as separate people from their adults. Um, as they get older, they start experiencing more complex emotions and the left-hand side of the brain starts coming online. Uh, and then the brain develops from the back to the front. So consequential thinking really doesn't occur in children until they start getting into their teens. Um, and sometimes with some people, it doesn't truly really develop until the late teens and early 20s. So what we have is we have someone who was working with a brain that doesn't work like yours. So they need different information and they need it in a different way. Kids between um, zero and seven are very literal. Um, they have a fantasy world and they're not really sure of the difference for quite long periods of time. They get into amazing creative um, narratives. And then as they get older and they develop into what we call a more concrete phase, their need for knowledge is really just that, is concrete. They need straightforward answers to questions. As they develop even further and the brain development starts moving forward into the uh, frontal cortex and the prefrontal cortex, what we find is that that's when they start becoming their own real individuals. Um, they start emerging into true individuation. And we start seeing this pull between young teens, older teens, and parents as they try to assert themselves as very, very different people. Coolest time, um, unless you forget as a parent that that's what they're trying to do and that it is healthy for them to do that. Um, <laughs> And so as you're thinking about how do you how do you talk to kids about crisis and stress, 
it really depends on where they are on this continuum of development as to both how you phrase the information and how much you give. The other thing um, to hold is that if a crisis hits a family, there's no blame. Crises hit. And trying to say, if only I could do this, I could protect my children or they wouldn't have to know or or we needn't talk about it too much. That is the, the protective part of you as an individual, but it's not the part your children need. What children need is to be told because they, um, they read your body language at an incredibly detailed and sensitive level. So if you are under stress or unhappy or worried, the children know. Um, and I often, I often say to kids, did you know this was coming? And they say, yep, known for months. Or I'll say to the parents, do you think your kids know that this is going on? They say, no, 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 no. <laughs> I just ask them. They, they will also, if they sense that something is wrong and you're not telling them, they will find ways of finding out. Yeah. Um, you know, they will listen at doors. They will, they will peek down stairways. They will creep around at night. If they're older, they might try and open your computer and read your email. Keeping kids in ignorance really is not doable because they're people and they're concerned and they're going to go and find out. And then they're going to find out something that may be misleading or they may interpret in a way that makes it worse than it actually is. So talking with kids and being open and honest with them is incredibly important, whatever is coming up. I think it's uh, it was kind of poignant what you just said, like the, the smaller children see themselves as as you, you know, like as that's not exactly how you said it. I'm not going to get it right. But they're they're so connected to you that your problems are their problems. And, you know, when you start getting older, the kids start finding their own way to be themselves. But if there is a problem within the family, some sort of crisis, whether it's a divorce or cancer or anything else that's going on what affects you as a parent they see that that affects them directly as well and so you need to be find a way to be age appropriate and open with them otherwise i can see that causing so much stress for the child to have this knowledge this understanding that there's something going on but they don't know what it is um so yeah that that just kind of that just kind of hit me i i never really put it together that the kids see themselves as an extension of you when they're that young. Yeah, you can see it happen. Um, or, you know, if you want to try it out, with just go and find a random kid and see what happens. Um, but if you watch, <laughs> watch a parent and child, if the parent is upset, the child will start escalating because what it communicates to the child is something is wrong. Right. So if parents are distressed, what the children receive is something is wrong, I'm not safe and they will escalate to match the mood. So what you'll see to bring children down is this parental mood where you take your child and you go, oh, are you hurt? Are you upset? It's okay, don't you worry. And with your voice and your body language, you bring them down and you say, it's okay, I've got you. And we have that embracing movement that we do with children as we hold them in those moments where they're distressed and we're telling them as the safe person, it's okay. Maybe you fell. It's okay. We can stand up. We can look at it. We can look at what's happened. We can, we can fix any cuts and bruises, and um, and and we can move on and we can be great. I remember the first time my youngest actually ever fell and cut herself. She looked at her leg and she said, "Mommy, I'm leaking." Oh, oh <laughs> going, that's so much <laughs> And I said, "It's okay. We can fix the leak. It's all right." <laughs> <laughs> you can fix the leak. Yeah. Um, how how does communicating with children, and of course, we're on this podcast, we're speaking specifically to you know cancer diagnoses. But um, you mentioning the difference in ages, how would you explain to kids what is going on? Let's say somebody has just been diagnosed with cancer mommy's going to be losing her hair or mommy's going to be spending a lot of time in the hospital or how would you explain that to maybe a five-year-old versus a 10-year-old versus a 15-year-old 
obviously you're going to know your own children. So you're going to have to adapt anything to your own family from the information shared. But the, the first thing you start with is working out what the words mean. So I wouldn't start with mommy's going to be going to hospital. I talk about mommy has um, a health problem and I'd use the word cancer and then ask them what if they know what it means. What does this mean to you? And I do that with all ages because you don't know. Right. You, you, and unless you ask, you don't know what anybody understands a particular word to mean. So you ask. With teenagers, you'll probably find that they have some kind of concept and it may be a high fear one. Um, and so we can then do some education on what cancer actually is. With little ones, you can talk about it in terms of building blocks. So cancer is a big sickness, not a little sickness like cold or flu, because the first thing you've got to be preparing your child for is that it doesn't mean that the next time you get sick with a cold or a flu or COVID as we now have or RSV, this is a different big sickness and you don't have one of those. Um, so they're going to leap to the next time I get sick. I'm going to be really sick like this too and we need to resolve that concern. And then you can, you can explore with, with friends or maybe with a provider um, the, the words to explain what cancer is. But you can talk of it as it's like your body is made up of building blocks and you can think about building blocks or Legos or um, some of the Minecraft interpretations. They, they sort of build things with Minecraft, say, as you're building. We're put together with building blocks. We are. We're just put together in a different way. And then you can say, just imagine that one of the bricks or blocks starts getting too big and then other ones join it and start getting too big. And what we have to do is we have to take those out and we have to let new ones grow that are healthy again. Something like that that's making it simple and understandable. If you've got slightly older children and they've done a bit of biology in school, you can talk to them about cells rather than building blocks. And you can, you can talk about how cancer works and that it is treated in a variety of ways. One of them is taking it out. One of them is taking medication that stops the cells from growing. Um, and that's where you get to your chemotherapy is about making sure that those cells don't continue to grow um, and leaving the space for the healthy cells to come back again. Um, and that the result of this medicine, there may be some hair loss. Um, and then you need to go to that is temporary um, and then you need to talk a little bit about the fact that um, most medicines, when we take them, that pretty much you expect to see people get better pretty quickly. And to a little kid, that's going to be the expectation, right? right. You tumble, you, you, you get a Band-Aid. If it's really bad, you may take a little bit of a, a, a Tylenol or a baby Tylenol, baby ibuprofen, and you feel better right away. But this is not one that feels better right away. And sometimes it may look a little bit worse before it gets better. But you explain it up front. It's going to look worse, but it is getting better. It just takes a little longer. So we're, we're setting the scene for the medical and um, medicine in, in interventions, plus starting the expectation that just because you're back from hospital doesn't mean you're going to get better within a couple of days. Um, it's going to take longer. And that's where we then talk about how we're all going to adapt to this and what we're going to do. And the immediate questions you're going to get from kids are going to be in the area of, is this my fault? Did I do this? If I'd done my homework the other night, instead of making a fuss about it, would you not have the answer? God, my heart. Yeah. <laughs> kids will immediately go to, is this something I caused? Uh, and so we need to cover it. Um, and your kids may say, no, 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 I didn't think that. But a high percentage may well do so. So we need to meet it and say cancer is never anybody's fault, particularly breast cancer. It's never anybody's fault. It happens and it's really sad, but we can deal with it. And then um, they're going to ask practical questions. And that may be disconcerting because it may feel like they're not worried about you. But remember that kids' world is so small. They trust right. you as an adult to have this, and that's good. That they would go to these questions is wonderful, but it's like, who's going to take me to school? 
How is it going to help me with my homework? Am I going to be able to see my friends on the weekends? Am I going to need to attend schools, right? Do I get to see you in hospital? Simple, straightforward questions that we can answer or may be able to say, you know, I don't know right now. Um, how am I going to get to soccer at the weekends? Are you going to be able to come to games? Um, and if you don't know the answer, if you don't know when you'll be able to get back to games, just say, I don't know, but you can rest assured the moment I can be there with you, I will. Um, and then they may ask, as they get older, from about seven onwards, kids have a sense of death. Earlier than that, they really don't understand it, and they often will not have any concerns about it. But depending on your child, six, seven, six, seven, eight, they're going to be worried about death. And so you can say, and be honest, sometimes people do die, but that is not the expectation for me. The doctors are really confident that what they're suggesting we do is going to help. It's going to take a little time, but it's going to help. Um, and then with older kids, I might sit with them and formulate their questions. And if I don't know the answers, invite them to meet with the medical team. Oh, so like that, that. They, yeah, they're really part of the process. This is you. You are part of them. Um, and in many ways, you know, our medical stuff is so private. And rightly so. But with something like this, I think you can, if you are happy enough and confident enough with your children to bring them into some of the discussions to get their answers from a professional so that they get that reassurance that you're not pulling the wool over their eyes and you're not pretending anything. Um, that is um, the best way to get teens the right information. And then knowing that teenagers are going to go up on the web and start reading stuff see if you can point them in the right direction. Um, yeah. and make sure that, uh, I think it's the um, American Medical Association have some really good um, website connects on how to get information. Um, and so direct them there, and then hopefully all of the follow-on links will be of an equal level and keep an eye on it. Um, and make sure that you're keeping an eye on what they're learning and keep the door open for more questions. I'm remembering right now because my my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer when she was 37 and I must have been I think I was in eighth grade um, and she didn't invite me to the doctor's appointments I think that she thought that that was too much but I do remember having this sense of security and I mean I was spiraling out as a kid anyway my aunt had just recently died of pancreatic cancer and to me, just cancer meant death. You know, I was I was very surprised that we didn't expect my mom to die from this. But one thing that I do remember her doing is telling me that as soon as she had a doctor's appointment, she would come home and we would immediately sit down and she would tell me everything that the doctor said. And I am a very, I have always been this way. I'm very type A. I want to have all the details. I'd rather have the uncomfortable details up front and be able to deal with those. I know not every kid is like that, but again, it's understanding your child. My mom understood me and that I needed to have everything. And then if I was concerned with that information, we could talk it through. And there was something about just knowing that, you know, I'm going to be at school, so I can't go to this doctor's appointment with my mom. But she did promise me that she would tell me everything, even the uncomfortable stuff. And so we'll go through that when we get home. I remember that that actually put me at ease. And I'm not saying that that's the same for every kid. But as an eighth grader, I had to know the details. I had It was my way of sort of feeling in control. I could then formulate my own questions for her if I knew what was happening. Um, I don't think that my younger sisters were, I mean, they were all, we're all four years apart. So they were four years younger and eight years younger. Um, so they were a whole different can of worms when it came to telling them what was going on and explaining things. But just kind of to your point, I remember that being a source of comfort that I was, first of all, included in these conversations. My parents didn't make them, quote unquote, adult conversations and you know, just let some information leak down to us eventually. I was a part of it and I was able to ask questions. And even though, of course, I knew nothing about it, I would throw out my own suggestions <laughs> as an eighth grader of how we how we fix this cancer and how we do things around the house. Um, and that was that was a really 
big source of comfort to me. So I, I love what you were saying there. Yeah, and it's it's amazing. You do get these these kids like you who who really need a lot of detail and need it fast and early. Other kids will take a while to process when you tell them, and then what they'll do is they'll circle back, and they'll come back with questions, and they'll ask them at the oddest times. They'll ask them in the car, they'll ask them in the bath. Um, so you've got to be ready to know that these things are going to happen and the questions are going to come. Some families may have a family pattern of sitting down to talk together once or twice a week. Um, if you don't, again, it's something that I talk to families about is we, we have what we call the safety zone conversations where you can ask anything or say anything um, without penalty or consequence. So we have safety zone conversations. Um, and I might um, suggest to a family that if they aren't doing that, we should start doing that. And then you're opening the forums so that if they haven't come to you at any other time, they do come um, at this time with questions or to start with, you let them know it's there. And that talking about this is not a taboo and it's okay. The other thing when it, with talking about it is that it, it can be both stressful and uh, emotional yeah. to think about this and to think about talking with your children about this. The best possible way is to do it in a pragmatic, steady way if you can. If you can't and you do have tears, and this can happen really fast, from diagnosis to, to getting into hospital can happen really fast in the grand scheme of things. If you do have tears, what I would suggest you do is explain them. Say, my tears are because I didn't want this for us. My tears are because I didn't want you to have this change to deal with. And focus the tears on the child instead of your own fears. And your own fears may be highly complex. You may be afraid of the cancer and the consequences, or you may be more afraid of the straight operation and the right. immediate day-to-day -day discomfort. So working with your own team to face your own fears and what they represent means it's easier to talk without those fears overcoming you when you're talking to your children. Um, and it is, a, it is something to grieve um, and it is something to share as we walk through this big change in the family. It's a big change in everybody's life. And generally speaking, families don't like change. Yeah. I, that kind of leads to, um, you know, the, the change in dynamics and the change in roles in the family, you know, where let's just say I'm just going to take a very traditional, I know that not every family is like this, but you know, in my family, when my mom had cancer, my, my mom was a stay at home parent. My dad went to work. Right. Um, and those roles not, didn't necessarily become reversed, but they did change up. There were days when my dad would take off from work and, you know, go to different appointments with my mom, or, um, we would have a neighbor come in and take care of us while my parents were out doing something. How do you explain to kids that these roles are going to be changed for a while or, I mean, maybe forever, but you don't probably want to go into that with kids. <laughs> this could be a forever change, but, um, you know, there's, there are things that I had to step up on. For example, I started a lot of nights I would be making dinner for my sisters and helping them do their homework uh, and getting them ready for bed because my mom absolutely couldn't handle it um, or she was in the hospital or something was happening. You know, there's there's the cognitive change that I think we've been thinking about, but then there's going to be the their environment is going to change, who is caring for them and who is um, something as simple as making breakfast for them? How, how do you best prepare them for that? Well, it's a two-stage process. The first one is that you have to discuss it with your partner. Um, and this can get a complicated on an emotional level because some partners are very tied to the roles that you have within the family and have a great deal of resistance to those roles changing, especially when um, the mom, the woman with the breast cancer, is the one who's what we call the executive parent. 
the parent who does the day-to-day organizing of the children's lives. And very often on a percentage level, women do perform that function within families. Um, and it's a, it's a complex one to take over. It takes a lot of organizing, getting everybody to the right place at the right time with the right lunchboxes and all of the right gear, making sure all of the homework is done and handed in on the right day. If you're not doing this reflexively, it's a huge task. And you and your partner are going to need to discuss how you want to manage that. And there's a variety of different ways. And this is where um, a therapist or um, someone who is, is a, a part of the support services for breast cancer can be so helpful as the parents work out, first of all, how they're going to approach this. And then you can say to your children, okay, um, with little ones, they will often offer to help. Um, and they can help with little things like they might help you put on your wig when you, um, your hair is coming out with chemotherapy. They might help you with tying scarves or putting on your shoes or, or tying up shoelaces. Um, and that can make them feel so empowered. Um, putting too many chore burdens on children is probably going to backfire if you do it for too long their tenacity for that kind of long change is limited because of their need to differentiate and individuate. Um, in other words, if you, if you pull them back into the support system too hard, you'll start frustrating their own developmental process. And we need to be really careful about that. Kids grow really fast at certain ages. And so we need to make space for that to occur. And that's where you may need some third party assistance. Um, and always look at your resources, look at what your insurances may cover, um, look what services are out there as support services and, and pull on them wherever you can. Circle your wagons and build your team. Uh, your children are part of the team, but they can't be carrying the team. Yeah. Um, I love that. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then as, as kids get older and are capable, for instance, of, of doing breakfast for younger ones or, or doing dinner, um, it probably needs to be occasional because if you do it too much, they're going to start pulling into, but my friends are all doing this. I'm missing this. I'm missing out on play rehearsals or soccer games or um, I know, speech and debate competitions. And they might do it one time round, but make it too often. And that, that um, dissonance is going to set in of my life versus my, my in the wagon circle. The other thing you do is you need to get consent. What do you think you can do? How long do you think you can do it for? What is the impact you're going to see if you do this so that you get that input up front? And so they can say, you know, sure, I can I can get up and make breakfast. But remember, I've got to be at school by, I mean, high schoolers, they are now adjusting the school times to times that are a little more attuned to a teenager's development, but they have to be up between six and seven just to get to school on time. So if they're making breakfast, are you shifting that earlier? And if so, how are you going to deal with the fact that teenagers actually don't sleep earlier because their biological system isn't programmed to do that as a teenager? Um, and so, you know, we've got to be practical and say, okay, if you're going to make breakfast on these mornings, it needs to be your late start mornings. Pull in systems to help that. Um, and then what I would also do as part of our circling the wagons and placing responsibility where it needs to be is let the schools know. Yes. As soon as you tell your children, let the schools know and let them know the languaging you have used in talking to your children. So they can say back, you know, if it's a little one, oh yes, you know, mommy's struggling with her building blocks right now. Um, if it's a teenager, yeah, it's cancer, it's breast cancer, but the prognosis is really good and strong. Um, <clears throat> but we do know certain things are going to happen. So let us know if you need to do this, that and the other, and we'll adapt. And schools can be really supportive if they know what's going on and you keep them posted. That kind of <laughs> leads into the conversation that nobody wants to have, which is what if this is a really bad prognosis? What if this is, you know, it is termed metastatic and there's not much 
life expectancy and explaining to the children that this is an inevitability in some way, shape, or form. How how would you do things differently versus how, I mean, because so far we've just explained like, hey, mom has cancer, you know, here's how we're going to deal with this. But what if that temporary, even if it's a long-term temporary, what if that temporary turns into a finality? A lot of it depends on the family's spiritual and religious affiliations. Um, if you have a religious affiliation, they will have languaging for what they believe occurs after death. So people may talk in terms of mommy's going to join God or mommy's going to heaven. Um, we can talk about um, waiting for you and being with you in the meantime. And kids understand to a certain extent that they are made up of you and their, and their, uh, their father and that they share a commonality there. So you can say, I am always with you because you are always with your children. Um, and I'm in your heart and memories keep us alive. You can create together memory albums and as you do it, share the memories that you share together and um, make that connectedness that they can come back to. If your family does not have a religious affiliation, then you need to work through what you believe happens after death um, and explain it in a way that makes it non-frightening in the same terms. Even if you don't believe that you there is any existence, spiritual or otherwise, um, after death, you're still with your children and will always be. And so we celebrate what we share instead of fearing what we might lose. We also know that grief brings with it certain reactions. Yeah. And um, it includes some that people can feel really bad about, like relief that someone's sickness and suffering is over. And so we need to talk about that. We need to talk about it's going to be a relief for me that I don't have to do this. And I want that relief for you, that you are going to be free to remember me as my best, as we've done in our album together, instead of worrying about me every day as to what's happening. Um, grief also brings questions. Why? Um, why would this happen to us? And we can go to the philosophical of, we never know when something really tragic is going to happen to a family. And it happens in all sorts of ways. It can happen in a car accident, unpredictably out of the blue. It can happen by way of people changing their decisions. They change jobs and it doesn't work out or they move homes. Um, so change happens and it's not always planned. Um, and if they say, why you? The real end of the answer of that is, why not? Because it is so random. And then kids are going to be concerned, could it be me? And the problem with that is that there is no safe answer. We cannot reassure children that they are not going to have crisis and lots of grief in their lives. Of right. course they are. But what we can say is that we have the skills to do this and we have the skills to survive this well. And this is what these skills look like. They look like talking and sharing and building teams and grabbing love wherever we can and sharing and holding those moments. And remember this too, we bring up our children to survive without us. That's our job as parents. And what the cancer is doing is forcing that early. It's not creating something that would never happen. So what we do is we look at how can we put those coping skills in place earlier and faster um, and allow our children to believe that they can do this and they can do this for us. If they live well, they are doing it for us, but it's not their burden. Their burden is not to be good because I need you to. It's right. live a full life and live it the way you want to live it. And I will love it wherever I am. Oh, 
Jane, that was so good. I just, I, I felt the whole energy shift in that. And, you know, it's, it's appropriate that the energy shifts in that, um, you know, it's a conversation that nobody ever wants to have both for themselves and especially for their children or have their children be scared or confused. And it sounds like inevitably they're going to be scared and confused, but it's really, really helpful to have pre-planned answers to it for when those questions come up. One of the things I learned as a therapist is that we're taught about grief and we're talking about the grieving process, but even though we know all that about it, we cannot avoid suffering it ourselves. We can't avoid grief. We can't avoid the losses of life. What we can do is do our best to understand and grow with the learning instead of allowing it to hamper us or fracture our lives. I, I want to be cognizant of time, so I'm going to keep moving on to different questions. Um, but that, that did hit me um, really poignantly. So I'm just going to tell our listeners, if you are listening to this and you have further questions about this, um, please reach out to us and let us know. And I will be sure to reach out um, to Jane and see if she has any follow-up comments or something, if there's something about that that just really hit you. Um, one thing that I hear from a lot of parents, especially with younger children, like newer babies, we had, um, we had a guest Jess on a few weeks ago and she found out that she had breast cancer while she was breastfeeding. So her baby is little, little. And when she had her double mastectomy, she was telling me that she was so concerned about some sort of, you know, am I going to screw up her development? because I can't hold her. I can't pick up anything more than five pounds. And this baby is definitely more than five pounds. Um, you know, so if you're used to breastfeeding and holding them or, you know, holding hands after a double mastectomy, you have what I call the T-Rex arms, you know, um, that usual physical touch tends to kind of change at least temporarily. And I, I think that I recognized that that was concerning for my youngest sister when my mom went through that. Um, so especially with little kids, how, how do you explain it? Or what, what would you suggest that people do to not screw the kids up for lack of a better term in any, any further way, because you now can't physically touch them or hold them in the way that you used to. And again, it usually lasts like six weeks, maybe a little more, maybe a little less, but because kids develop so quickly, I, I think people really worry about that. I think the thing to remember is that temporarily changes in how we nurture our children are temporary. Kids' brains are very, very flexible and they will heal or reset relatively quickly if there's a reestablishment of the physical contact. So if you're thinking in terms of, is it going to damage attachment and the attachment, the biological attachment process? It is unlikely um, unless there is no uh, other consoling process. Remember, we hold babies to console them. So your partner may need to do a little more of the cuddling, but you can use your voice. You can use song, you can use music. You can use closeness even without the cuddling. Remember that your, your body is bigger than just you. You have an energetic part to you. Your children recognize that. So just being close to your child, that's why they hold your hand. That's why they walk close, um, is that they can feel that energy and that connectedness. Um, so remember just sitting close and singing um, and um, making those times your special times, well, maybe your partner does the cuddling, um, can hold the system and keep it moving forward so that the attachment remains and the attachment process does not get fractured. So yes, it's a concern, but no, it's not a disaster. As long as we um, sort of, as you said, cognitively think about how do we want to do this in a slightly different way for this limited time that our movement is so restricted 
about. We can't do the cuddling right now. We've got a, a little one who's old enough to hear, but this is what we can do together. We can sing our favorite song or we can read our favorite book. So you replace it with a different connectedness. Okay, I love that. And the the last thing, and I'm, I'm really, really hopeful that you're able to come on again in the future um, because just talking to you has brought up so many more questions that I have about this. But um, how, how would you recommend that siblings sort of support each other and help each other out? I think the first thing to remember is that siblings are going to talk. They're going to talk to each other. Um, they're going to share their thoughts. They're going to come up with themselves. So I would encourage them. I'd say chat amongst yourselves. Let me know if you come up with questions. Um, brainstorm together how you're going to do whatever it is. Maybe one of the new things they're all going to have to do is put away their laundry once a week and do it fairly quickly or everyone's going to be falling over. Um, so do it as a team. Um, and then, um, you know, encourage that as a time when you sit with them while they're doing it and you say, okay, get some, well, you know, talk about it. Tell me what questions you've got. Um, so anticipate the sharing, encourage and support it and join in where you can. Okay. Yeah. I, I just remember it being, you know, watching my sisters, because um, like I said, you know, we were all four years apart. So it was very interesting how each of us dealt with it differently and the ways that we all tended to kind of support each other. And I do think that, you know, I mean, for as much as siblings fight and, you know, argue with each other and whatever, it is really interesting that when there is a trauma or something really, you know, tough happening in the family, it is interesting how they kind of tend to come together and um, to have parents really support that and encourage that, I think is important. It also brings the siblings a lot closer. You know, you don't feel like this is something that you're handling on your own it gives you the sense that you are a part of this bigger family and everybody has a role to play um while this is going on i think the thing you can hold in mind is what siblings are doing together is practicing life skills when they're fighting they're practicing and working out conflict resolution if they're coming together in a crisis they're learning how to function as a team um, and if you think of it in that way, there's going to be a forming and storming time when everyone's uncertain and doesn't know what to do. And then it's going to form into a pattern of problem solving and brainstorming together. Work that pattern and use it um, and, and help it work for them to be, as you say, a consolation and support. Yes. And then uh, the last the last question I have is more or less for partners, um, we, we discussed how the change in dynamic can be very difficult for partners as well. Um, we all have our role to play and now the roles are going to be shifted. And I know that your primary focus is the children, but at least in your experience, whether it's dealing with divorces or the death of somebody or um, you know changes in role reversal or any of that, have you seen, or maybe let me take it back, um, in your experience, how do you recommend that the partners work together for the betterment, obviously, of the entire family unit? Um, but what would you say to somebody who has just recently been diagnosed? This is a very long walk around to this question, and it certainly doesn't need to be this long. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of rambling, but... We see, I'll, I'll start it with this. We see so many people that are diagnosed with breast cancer and their spouse either shuts down, takes off, files for divorce, um, decides that this is not something that they can handle or a myriad of other shithead moves, basically. Um, are there certain ways that the breast cancer patient should be bringing things up to their spouse. And this is a little more, not as child focused, but I think it has a trickle down effect. Um, what would your comments or thoughts be if the partner who should be a support system is not being that? 
you can front end some of those by first of all, having maybe an honesty in the um, parents' discussions that may not have been there either at all or since their courting days. That you talk about what your expectations are. Not all people enter into marriage for the same reasons. And if those reasons get derailed, there can be a real struggle. So being able to talk honestly about what they are may mean that you can bring in some resources to meet some of those practical things um, that will prevent the collapse. Um, The other thing is that I think in our society, men are very unsupported. They have now, I think, this illusion that they are going to be both tough and strong, muscular and brave, and sensitive and caring and empathetic and in touch with their female sides. And it's really hard to be both of those simultaneously. Yes. I would say, get the men a support system and make sure that it's functioning as fast as you can. A really good therapist and another man may well be a good idea. Um, A support group where they can go and they can vent about, oh, I'm so tired of having to do the dishwasher four times a day. Why does no one share in on this? Um, Where they can have empathy for the frustration of the things that they want to do. The other thing is to remember is that they get scared. When people act out in the dramatic ways you mentioned, Megan, it's usually because they're scared. And if we don't create a venue to acknowledge that this is frightening, to think about losing your life partner, to think about not being able to protect your life partner brings up in men the feeling of helplessness. And they do not like that feeling and will do almost anything to avoid it. So if we can create areas where they feel competent and that they do have agency, we may be able to support them through struggling with this. Um, And again, that comes down to not just building your team, but building their team too. They're, They're not going through the physical trauma and the pieces that go with that, but they are going through trauma. And if we're not supporting that, we will see the consequences of trauma being left untended. How would you recommend women um, going through this? And I'm, again, I'm using women loosely only because, um, you know, people identify in different ways, but how would you recommend for women going through this and, you know, spouses going through this, especially men, kind of to force them to go do those things and I'm only saying that because my husband who who was incredible he needed an outlet he needed a sense of support and he refused is there any whether it's a specific person that they should you know reach out to maybe their own parents or a therapist like you said how do you kind of put your foot down and say no you have to go do this you have to. I can see it taking a toll on you. Therefore, it's taking a toll on me. It's taking a toll on the family. How do you lovingly push them <laughs> to go do these self-care things um, if they're a little bit believing that they don't need it? Oh, so tough and so strong, right? <laughs> um, I think I think it's an, an acknowledgement. And Obviously, every relationship is different. Um, But I think there's the realm between saying, this needs to happen, go make it happen, um, to I'm offering you this. And you you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make it drink. Um, These things are there, we've put them in place. It would really be helpful if you use them to, honey, you're falling apart. You need to go do this. It's part of that honesty that I'm talking about is to be able to say, you know, you're being absolutely incredible, but you look so tired. Can we please look at a way to help you? 
you're being so loving and supportive and so great with the kids. You must be exhausted. I need you to take some time for yourself. I've arranged for someone to come and be with me so you can go off for a couple of hours and have some time. So honesty with compassion. Um, this is a really, really hard time for men. They love and want to protect and shelter their families. And when they can't do that, they do go into a stress reaction that is very hard for them. So compassion and understanding as to what part of the man it is that is feeling so uncomfortable and allowing that part to be real without judgment is important. Thank you for that. I, I think that that's the, the suggestion with the compassion part is maybe where I fell a little short <laughs> during, during my whole uh, experience. Um, so thank you so much for that. Um, we are out of time, which is really frustrating for me always. Um, having guests on, the time just flies. But for our listeners, as always, reach out to us if you have any other questions, questions that this conversation with Jane have, has brought up for you. Um, and we can get in touch with Jane and see if there, you know, we can get any clarification on things. Um, and also, I'm just so hopeful that we can find another time to have Jane on once you all have kind of written in and asked further questions so that we can have her touch on those. You know, this is a really, really complicated piece of the puzzle when you are diagnosed with breast cancer that, frankly, myself and uh, Sam just cannot speak to because we don't have children. So we, we really, really want you guys all to reach out to us. Let us know other concerns that we weren't able to touch on today. Um, and we would be happy to get back in touch with Jane. Jane, thank you so much for being on today. Um, this was even not being a parent, this was something that touched me as, as a child, having experienced it as a child. And, you know, you, you tend to reconcile things as you get older. And there are so many things that you said today that almost kind of put puzzle pieces in place for me that were maybe still a little bit out of whack from when my mom had cancer. So I very, very much appreciate that. I'm going to be kind of sitting with this conversation all day. <laughs> Frankly, I'm going to be running this around in my head. Um, so when we are usually signing off with people, I usually try or I ask the guests to try to give one, like if there's an overarching takeaway from this conversation, what would, what would you want that to be for our listeners? I think it goes back to speaking from your heart with honesty. If you can do that with your partner and your children, you may get through this with the least bumps. There are going to be bumps, but you yes. may get through it with the minimum. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it, Jane. That's our show. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Tits Up. We'll be back next week, Thursday, and every Thursday after that. Quick reminder again about how you can support the podcast and help us grow this vibrant community that we are creating. First, whether you are listening to the show or watching us on YouTube, please click the subscribe button and leave us a review. Also, send the show to a friend or a specific episode that you really enjoyed. Second, please follow us on all of our social media platforms all links are below in the description. Or if you are an elder millennial like myself and you would like to call us and leave a voicemail, you can reach us at 720-892-6669. We want to know if you would like to be a guest on the show or if you have ideas for upcoming episodes, thoughts, comments, concerns regarding past episodes. We would love to hear from you. This podcast is for all of us and we cannot do this without you. Also, please remember, we are not medical professionals, and we are never giving medical advice. Everyone's experience with cancer is very different, and just because we did something one way does not necessarily mean that that's how you should do it. 
If you have any questions about your health and well-being, please contact your doctor. Everyone take care, and until next time, tits up.